Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds, a new podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm talking to James Beard-nominated chef Kevin Gillespie, best known for his performance on Bravo's Top Chef and his Atlanta restaurants, Gun Show, Revival, and Cold Beer, just to name a few. Today, we're going to be talking about something a little different, and you don't hear many male chefs discussing it, body positivity. I was really struck when I saw your Instagram post, you know, as somebody who's, I'm a former chef and restaurant critic, and I've struggled with my weight my entire life and my body image. So to see yourself, see you like really put it all out there was really amazing. And the response you got was amazing. And I just wanted to talk to you kind of just about what led you there to posting that picture, you know, even if we go all the way back to, you know, kind of those first experiences of when you were so body aware as a kid. I mean, like I know for me back when they had that presidential fitness test, I don't know. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Where you had to like, you know, sit down and put your feet against the box and touch your toes and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. Yeah. But they also weighed us in front of everyone. And it was like the first time I knew that my BMI was different than other girls. (laughs) So, you know, I just remember that being a very crystallizing moment where I realized I was like a bigger girl and didn't know (laughs) when that happened for you. I know in the South, like it's like boys and football and yeah. You know, and all of that was true. So it was weird. This is how it sort of happened. So when I was a younger kid, it was advocated because I was always big. So I, I was always, I've always been despite how big I am, I've always been very athletic. So I was really good at football and I was big. And so I was very good at football when I was a kid. And so not only was it like, did people like it, but I mean, I literally can remember my coach um, after football practice, taking me to his house and I would eat dinner with his family. And then he would take me home and I would eat dinner with my family. So I would eat two dinners like every night um, just because it was like, Hey, the bigger you can be, the better. And uh, you know, as a kid, you're, I mean, as a, kid, I thought that was awesome. But, you know, as an adult, you're like, wow, I cannot believe how quickly like you ingrain such terrible habits and, and just a terrible relationship with food over things like that. I think for me, when I started realizing this sort of negative body image stuff was was right around the time that everybody's hitting puberty. And so I think I was a little bit later to the game. So I was bigger to start with, but then all my friends started hitting puberty and I hadn't yet. I started to feel really self-conscious about myself because I didn't see those changes. But then when I did hit puberty, um, I didn't get that much taller. I was still kind of this, you know, heavy set guy who wasn't particularly tall. Um, All of a sudden I wasn't this, you know, like phenomenal football player because I was only 5'10 as opposed to six something, which is what everybody kind of assumed I would be given that like all of my dad's siblings are all like six, my dad's the shortest at six, two. So they're all like six, two to six, 10. And so when I was like five, 10, it was very weird. So I'm still built with like the frame that they have, but about a foot shorter. And so, um, you know, you start feeling really self-conscious about, about who you are. And, um, about that same time, I kind of gave up on athletics, but I didn't give up on the eating part. I didn't give up on that sort of same way of approaching food. And so, you know, I just got fatter, to be honest with you. And then I just got heavier and heavier. And the memories that make me the most upset when I think about them now are, are the, you know, the feeling like you couldn't take your 
shirt off when you got in the swimming pool. You know, it, they're almost all teenage memories that make me really uncomfortable. As a little kid, I didn't really care. Like I was just, it just didn't make much of a difference to me that I was like fatter or bigger. Or It, it, it never really made much of a difference to me because I was still, maybe because, you know, you take like that, that presidential fi- physical fitness test, for example, like I could still do pull-ups. I could still run as fast as everybody else could because I played a lot of sports. But once I hit a teenager, then I just felt like this like undersized, undermatured, like fat kid who was just kind of a chubby kid. And that was it. And um, it really manifested itself when, again, my friends started to look different. I didn't. And then, you know, you go into the world of teenagers and boys and girls or, you know, when you're trying to, you know, find a girlfriend and date and all of a sudden you're just, you just don't look like a, but yeah, I don't know. You just, you, you feel outside of yourself. It's, those were kind of when it's when it first started. And I think that for the most part, I generally brushed it under the rug. I would just let it go because I would convince myself that you can't have everything, I guess is sort of the way I would say it. And I'd be like, well, you know, I'm smart or I'm I'm this or I'm that. So it's like, you know, I, I just want I, I'm not a really good looking guy, but that's okay. Like I have a lot of other attributes about me. And I would just I just started telling myself from probably I don't know, 13 or 14 that like, you know, you're not a physically attractive guy, but you have all these other attributes about you that are attractive. And I lived that way, like through adulthood, like I just had it in my head. It didn't really matter what you said or what any other, you know, for me, you know, being heterosexual, what any other woman would say, it was like, I, I still didn't believe you. If you thought that I was an attractive looking guy, I was like, well, you, you know, like I've won you over with my personality or with something else, you know, um, I just, I just wouldn't believe it, to be honest with you. It just, it seemed like you were being nice. Like somebody was just trying to be nice to me. And I never realized how much that damages your sense of self-worth to, to just sort of very quietly and with no consequences, put yourself down all the time. Um, that to me is the insidious piece of this. And that's why I really wanted to bring attention to it because it isn't, this is not about, um, I think some people assumed it has to do with like uh, that it's about vanity. It is not about vanity in any way. Mm-hmm. It's about this idea that I really don't like that people unknowingly or quietly judge themselves every single day. Um, because in my mind, you know, I use this analogy with a, with someone I was trying to explain this to the other. It's like having a bucket full of water and then every day pouring a couple drops of poison in it. And in the beginning, it, it doesn't really amount to much. But over time, that poison, which is so much heavier, displaces all the water. And eventually, you just have a bucket full of poison. And it really infects all of the other aspects of your life, including when you go into adulthood and you start facing more trying times, you know, genuine tribulations. Well, all of a sudden, it's almost like you're playing with a, a stacked deck. Like it, you just don't have have the same abilities because you have this sense of self-worth or rather a lack of self-worth that manifests itself as crisis comes along in life. And that's where I think it started showing up for me later in life, me acknowledging it because um, I wouldn't understand why I would be so down on myself, you know, like, and, and it would just, and then you realize, well, yeah, I've kind of been down on me forever. So, um, you know, when people say that, like, oh, I'm my own worst critic, like it goes past that. I don't know what that what that next step is, but it, it certainly went past that. Well, self-esteem, self. right? Yeah. yeah I mean, exactly. It's self-esteem and being able to, I think, accept compliments, 
and like validate yourself. I mean, like, listen, I have your bio here. If I look at everything that you've ever done on paper, James Beard, Top Chef, your restaurants, your cookbooks, you have lived a very big life, you know, and you should be happy with yourself. But like, I know I, I talk about this all the time with my therapist because food for me is a very good and evil kind of thing. You oh, know, for sure. like, cause, because I had the same issues that you did, but you know, as a woman, my formative years with food are also tainted. So mm-hmm. like, I love food, you know, I mean, I adore it. I've made a career out of it, which is kind of ironic given I have such a toxic relationship with it in my body. And I was kind of wondering, like for you, did that affect your relationship with food at a young age? Like, do you think that informed you becoming a chef? For sure. I think I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and I think it has, I think it began in one place and it has become something else. So I think that when I was younger, it was an excuse for being overweight, but one that was like charming to a certain degree where it was like, you know, he's a chubby kid, but he loves food. He loves cooking food. He's a very good cook. And then people were like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Was food love in your household? Like, I know you it learned was. from your grandma. Yes. And- yeah, absolutely. It was, but it was also control, uh, which it sounds really dark no. and morbid. Yeah. But what I mean is that my grandmother, who I call my granny, my granny was the only person who cooked. So my my family all lives together kind of in one big, like they each have their own homes, but the entire street is just my family. That's awesome. And my granny cooks every meal for everybody. And so because she was the one cooking, she, it also, for me as a kid, it made it feel like you were the one in charge. And I I have said openly that I think that appealed to me at a young age that I saw being the one feeding people as equated to being the one who called the shots. And I've, I've always been, I mean, I'll admit that I'm like, I'm a notoriously bossy person. Like I'm just very, this is what it is. Like, and it's served me well in some respects and in other ways, maybe it hasn't. And so that was a big piece, but the love component was there because my family sat down and ate every meal together. We were not the eat on the go family. Like you sat down for lunch and you ate lunch. And I mean, when I say you, I mean like my, my family members, my aunts and uncles, my dad would leave work and come to my grandmother's house and we would eat lunch. Like um, we did the same at dinner. We did it at breakfast every single day. And so it was a very, it, it's something I miss in adulthood tremendously, actually, like that familial sense of sitting down to a meal together. Now, granted, my wife and I still do it every single day, but it's it's different than having, you know, literally 30 people there. I um, can imagine. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, into adulthood, what's interesting is that, well, let me, before I get there, let me go. So in that high school, sort of early college days, cooking was my means to to me, that was my most charming aspect about me. I mean, I, I was telling my wife, like, my go-to move was not <laughs> a pickup line. It was cooking for you. Like, you know, I had I had a handful of dishes that I knew inside and out, including, you know, you have to take, this is the mid-90s, by the way, the molten chocolate cake. I had that oh, thing yeah. down pat. Classic. And like, yeah. And like, you want to talk about, like, that was my move to get the ladies, like, let me make you this molten chocolate cake. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's so absurd, but it like, I mean, it beyond worked. So, um, or at least in my mind, it worked. And this is funny as an adult, I may still be convincing myself that it was just the chocolate cake. <laughs> Probably and, you know, are. And, you know? yeah. um, and so it, that was absolutely kind of my go-to. And so for, I used it, it was my 
food was my compensation for my lack of self-worth in other respects. I felt like it's like a cycle, right? I mean, it's hilarious. I'm not that, but I sure can cook. And like, and I felt good about myself Mm -hmm. now. And this is really post cancer. um, So for the last three years, give or take, my relationship with food is very different and it has made my career very difficult for me. I don't have that unhealthy obsession with food the way that I used to. And that has made being a chef very hard for me. Can you tell listeners who don't know about your battle with cancer? um, I know the details, but some people might not. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was a very, uh, very weird relationship, but I was, I was perfectly fine one day, or at least I felt fine. My wife and I were on vacation. We were in New Zealand and we actually had gone bungee jumping. And after we got done bungee jumping, my kidney hurt really bad. My kidney on my right side. And I was like, what happened? Like, did I do something wrong? And, um, and then I convinced myself, uh, I must just be dehydrated. And so, you know, I, I tried to deal with it that way. And then I thought, uh, you know, I might have a kidney stone, you know, men get them. That's a thing. And so I called my doctor back in the U S and said, Hey, I'm in New Zealand on vacation. Do I need to go to the hospital? And he was like, no, like just when you get back, like, we'll, you know, we'll make an appointment now when you get home from vacation, which was like two weeks away. Um, you can come in and we'll take a look at it. And so I went in and had them take a look at it. And I got back to the parking lot, but not quite to my car before he called me and said, you need to come back to the office. You need to bring your wife. And I went back, you know, I called Valerie and I said, hey, this is never good, but I need you to meet me here. And so she came and we went in and he said, look, I don't know. We'll just cut the chase here. Like um, you something growing in your kidney. It looks to something we call a Bosniak cystic mass. Um, you know, they're graded and yours is the four F, which is as high as it goes. Um, which means that it has lots of little cell walls inside it that we can see. Um, and it's currently occupying 96% of your right kidney and we have to remove it immediately. And I was like, literally this is so stupid i can't believe i said this but i was like i'm really busy right now um i have a lot of stuff going on and so you know like what do you mean right now like because i got this thing and he was like well if it was up to me we'd do it today he was like you have 10 days and i was like okay like and so i spent 10 days really just trying to get my ducks in a row so i didn't actually have a chance to kind of panic about it um until i was laying on the gurney with about a thousand tubes sticking in and out of me, getting ready to go into surgery. And then all of a sudden it hit me that he had said before we ever went in, we don't know what we're really dealing with because it's so fast. We don't have it. We may open you up and find something very, very different. So I can't tell you what our plan is. You're going to wake up to find out what the plan is. Scary. It was terrifying. Um, And then I went under the knife and then frankly, I don't really have much memory of the next six months because it didn't go well. They removed my kidney, my adrenal gland, part of my intestines. Uh, I lost a gallbladder and part of my common bile duct. And uh, I basically got completely reworked on the inside. Um, I found out I have an narcotic pain medication because the cool. like the, every time the morphine drip would hit, I would lose consciousness and have to be resuscitated. Oh um God. And then it got infected. And anyhow, long story short, through all of the treatment that went along with that, I basically spent like the next six months of my life, like kind of floating in and out of consciousness um, until one day I just kind of woke up and, and started to get better. 
Um, thankfully, the type of cancer I have is one that if you can get it out of you, it does not have a high recurrence rate. It has an extremely high mortality rate, however, if it ruptures before you take it out. So thankfully, it appears that we got everything out before that took place. Um, but I still, you know, I am still technically in remission. You know, I still go every six months and and have things reevaluated. Um, about six months ago, they found something on my other kidney. And needless to say, we all started to have a meltdown. It has turned out to be a benign cyst and it's fine. But needless to say, anytime something isn't quite right or doesn't feel quite right, you get really scared and you're worried that you're, you know, that your days are up. And um, yeah, and it was, it was an incredibly insane experience. And, you know, it sounds so cliche to say like, oh, it changed me forever, but it absolutely changed me forever. It changes everything about you, changes your perspective. It certainly changes. I had a really bad, how do I say this? I, I was entirely too obsessed with, with my success prior to, to cancer. Like I was, um, beyond driven driven is probably is a positive attribute this was beyond it was obsessive to be honest with you obsessed with how many restaurants can i open how much money can i make how many people can i employ how many awards can i win how many this how many that and i don't even think i paid attention to them it was like you said like you see this bio and it lists all these things and i would just get the, that that thing would come and i just chuck it on the stack and move over to the, move on to the next thing and um it's, it's just, I hated the fact that that's the way that I saw my life. And I'm very thankful that something like woke me up and made me see things differently. I now know because I've had enough years away from that to realize that that thing that was happening, that, that, that poisonous mindset had been building for most of my life. And a great deal of it comes back down to the way I felt about myself. And though it might seem petty for some people to say, like, it was all based on the fact that you just didn't think that you were a physically attractive man. And, but yeah, because that, that stuff has a lot to do with you. The way that you look, or at least the way you think you look to the outside world, has so very, very much to do with the way that you end up living your life as an adult. I think that, you know, I have a, uh, my business partner, his, his son is transgender, and I've listened to him talk about this for years now, about the fact that his son doesn't. When he stands in front of a mirror and looks at himself, he doesn't look the way that he thinks he should look and how incredibly damaging that is for him and how, um, and granted, I, I think that what he's going through is so much more than, than what I'm talking about, but I am acknowledging the fact that there can be a big disconnect that will manifest itself in a number of ways as your life continues to move forward. It might be something as simple as, that lack of sort of cognitive connection in the beginning, but it can become something much more. For me, it became a compensation of having to do and make and build and win at everything. Or I went back to feeling like that 13 year old boy who, who felt embarrassed about himself all the time. So back to what you were saying about how having cancer affected your relationship with food and how you had to rebuild it. Um, I mean, I have to imagine just from what I heard that it affects your taste buds and, and just anything. I mean, how you, I mean, did you just completely change your eating afterwards and has it been sustained? It's, it's, well, it changes it in different ways for each person. I realized I thought it was kind of, there was sort of a common way that it worked out for everybody. But what I've found in talking to people is that it's different for everybody. For me, it wasn't so much that my taste buds changed. It was more that, well, in the beginning, it was that I just didn't 
want food in any way. Like I had no desire for it. And that was a very new thing for me. Like I've always been a man who's been led by his cravings. And when you don't have any cravings at all, really at all, it's very strange. I also, as a professional chef, have always cooked from my cravings. Hmm. So when they go away, makes it extremely difficult to conceptualize and create new ideas when you don't really want to eat whatever it is that you're making because you don't really want anything. So that's another another big piece of it. For me, where the major change was is that I learned to listen to my body's response to the food I was putting in my system. And I could tell when I was eating something that my body liked, and I can tell when I don't, when I eat something that it doesn't like. Always, I think that's always been happening in me, but I was really good at turning off the physical symptoms of food that shouldn't be going in my body and replacing them with the mental satisfaction, maybe the endorphin rush of something, you know, let's say like a, uh, like donuts, for example. I love donuts. I think they're amazing, but they don't really like me. Um, and I probably shouldn't eat them ever, honestly. Um, but now let's, you know, for example, if I, if I was to eat a donut, I would eat a donut and I might even eat half of a donut and I would enjoy it as an indulgence amongst friends or in a special occasion or when I'm somewhere that's significant, or if I'm literally you know, if you're like, this is the best donut that is being made in America, hell yeah, I would go get it in a heartbeat. Like, mm -hmm. but I would have a very healthy relationship with it where I was like, that was really wonderful. Thank you. I wouldn't feel the need to order one of every one mm -hmm. and then eat them, all, you know, and then turn off the like, I don't feel very good. You know, keep going, keep going, keep going. So for me, it was the relationship with food that changed so much um, in that I started to, I turned myself off of many foods because I, because they made me feel bad um, and they made me physically hurt. And so I started listening to what made me feel physically well. And then I realized that a lot of that was not, it was the way that I cooked professionally and the food that I now needed to put in my body were oftentimes like diametrically opposed from one another. And it was very hard for me. It still is very hard for me because I've built in, in great, you know, sort of at, at high levels here, I've built a reputation off of being a chef who approaches the conceptualization and execution of food in a very particular way that isn't necessarily accurate to who I am anymore. And that's really, really hard. And it is why more often than not, you do not see me cooking in my own restaurants very much anymore because I have had to instead find the people who cook the way that that restaurant was designed to be rather than their concepts entirely. It doesn't make as much sense in the context of my own businesses anymore. And that is extremely difficult. I think, I actually think you're the first person I've admitted that to. Um, and it's a, it's a bit of an existential crisis that I'm going through as a chef. You're honoring yourself. You're honoring what you need. You're honoring what your body needs and you're stepping back from something that doesn't serve you anymore. So in a way, I think it's beautiful because you're evolving, you know? I mean, like you're saying, like, not to talk about myself, but just as a point of reference, like I used to be a restaurant critic and I loved going out to these restaurants and having the pre and going to Guy Savoie and, you know, Thomas Keller and it's like from the Mignardis and everything. And, and now I can't eat like that anymore. I just, I can't, it makes me feel ill. 
And like, talk about like a existential crisis when you're a food writer who doesn't really want to go eat restaurant food anymore. I just want to honestly cook for myself and my family. I mean, right. that's where I'm at, you know? Yeah. Like I, mean, I got I, English peas and I'm excited about them and I'm going to use them. And that's, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. I was trying I mean, to heal my relationship with food through these conversations, you know. I understand. I mean, I mean, honestly, I'm in, in many respects in the exact same place, you know. Um, but it has, it, you know, as as a as a former critic, you understand. Like one of the things that chefs are most criticized for is not being chained to the stoves of their restaurants. So, you know, that's a whole separate conversation. And I've been extremely vocal about the fact that I could not disagree with that more. Um, that I really think it's unfair to treat any human being that way. Um, I, and agree. I think that, And I think it's wrong to advocate for unhealthy lifestyles that so many chefs have felt like, um, not only that were, that were admired. Like, I just, I cannot, I, I promised myself when it was my turn, when I was the one running it, when it was my money, when it was my business, that I was not going to do that to people that I wasn't, there was going to be no screaming and yelling. There was no, you know, condescension. Um, that we were going to be as diverse as we could possibly be. We were going to try to surround ourselves with really great people and that we were going to be this business that advocated for people being healthy and healthy in their work. You know, not just, I don't mean literally just eating grain bowls. I mean, like show up to work and it's a healthy environment. Um, and so for me, as my needs of my personal health have changed, I've had to sort of, I've had to evolve and change what I do professionally to suit that. And now for me, that feels more putting myself more in the role of being the mentor and coach and the director and less about, I'm going to be the one making the most overly indulgent dish that's going to blow your mind. Because in reality, I am much more likely these days to get excited about just a piece of fish that is very, you know, very delicately seasoned. That's just super fresh that I've just cooked perfectly. Like, oh man, I could not have nailed the cooking on that better. What's it being served with? Nothing like a lemon, <laughs> um, you know, and and that's not exciting from a diner's perspective. That's not going to get you. made a business off of it, and I love it. That's true. That's true. Yeah, you know? I guess you're right. I just feel yeah. like that's probably, you know, doesn't suit the kind of current, the current, um, you know, culinary uh, arena where people are constantly pushing the edges of things. And I couldn't be any further from that. I've taken so far of a step back. And there's, in my opinion, there's always room for indulgence in life. I still love, like, I love, I have still have a very unhealthy relationship with sugar that it just, I don't know. I love sweets and always have loved sweets. Um, but nevertheless, it's just, um, you just have to grow up sometimes and you have to change and you have to listen to yourself. And frankly, as a man, like actually come to terms with his own mortality in, in, in real ways, I'm just not willing to continue to abuse myself that way. And so to come back for full you. circle to the question that you asked in the beginning about why did I post this is that I think I did because I spent the last several years trying to stop this pattern of personal abuse without realizing that I was still doing another part of it that I just had that I hadn't even acknowledged that I was doing. Even though I had changed my relationship with food, I've lost a lot of weight. Um, I exercise a great deal more. I need much pounds, healthier. You said, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a um, lot of weight, and, but not in like a not in a fad diet way. Like in a, it's taken years of hard work and exercise and everything else. I'm probably healthier now than I've been most of my life, and yet my mental health was still garbage. And I felt like, especially nowadays in this world that we live in, that is so media driven, things like Instagram, for example, driven just by pictures, by an image of something that. 
we were running, we collectively, humanity, was running a risk of making this mental health thing even worse because we were going to just constantly berate people who were still very impressionable in their life, still younger and still looking at those pictures and going, uh, attractive guys look like that. Attractive girls look like that. Attractive, um, you know, that's the male normative. That's the female normative. And that we were going to damage them inherently because we weren't being honest with each other about the fact that that's not how most people look. And that's not how most people feel. And that's not how most people live. And so I guess I felt like I was, I was frustrated that morning that I posted it. I was mad about the fact that I'm like, what does Instagram think I'd like to see? Why do they like, how many, I have, I don't know how many times I have to say not interested to a, to an 18 year old girl doing a TikTok dance. I'm like, I'm not a freaking pervert. Like quit showing me like teenage <laughs> girls dancing around in their underwear, please. And then it's like, oh, you don't want to see that. Well, let me replace them with, uh, with videos and pictures of, uh, gym bros, like working out, you know? And you're like, and I just had like, I was like at my breaking point and I was like, None of this is reflective of my actual life, like, or anyone's for that matter. And it's bullshit. And it just like, I just snapped. And I was like, you know what? This is what a grown 40 year old man who has had way too many surgeries to count, who has had to fight to just stay alive and stay healthy looks like, it looks like this. And it looks kind of like a hot mess, but for the first time ever in my life, I'm okay with that. And I said it because I thought to myself, Somebody else out there is having this exact same crisis right now. I don't know him. I don't know her. But enough people look at what I do online that someone will see it. If even for one moment, for one day, make them be like, thank God somebody gets it. And that's mm -hmm. that was really the driving catalyst behind it. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with chef and former Top Chef contestant Kevin Gillespie you saying that men don't do this very often. I mean, for me, you know, I'm almost 45. I grew up when being skinny was normative for a woman. And now seeing all this, this amazing trend of all these plus size models and Ashley Graham embracing her curves and like people being so responsive. I always like joke to my fiance. I'm like, you know, God, if only I had been like, you know, raised now, right. maybe I would have been like, you know, a lot more confident. Why do you think men are kind of left out of that conversation? Well, I think that a lot of this has to do with the American model of masculinity. We believe, or at least that I'm speaking a lot from my own upbringing. And so I can't say if it's this way for, for young no, just boys. Just speak to your experience. You know. But certainly when I was being brought up, you know, um, men were tough. Like it, it was like, that was like, what could you strive to be as a man? Like list the top attributes and toughness was a big one, but toughness was not understood the right way. In my opinion, I think that toughness was misinterpreted as not being willing to talk about anything that, um, that bothered you not being, not being vulnerable um, it, it really advocated for this sense of just sucking it up, kind of, you know, drink it in, bottle it up. It doesn't need to, nobody else needs to worry about it. If you feel like you need to tell somebody that your that your feelings are hurt, it's because you're weak. And I think that has driven a lot of men to end up in a very, very bad place. Um, I think that it has always been too in male society that we joke with each other 
tease each other in in a way that's meant to be, oh, I'm just playing with you. I'm just messing with you. But anytime somebody says that, there's always an element of truth to it, you know? And so being made fun of for being fat was more uh, just a male camaraderie than anything else. But that's only funny to the people making the joke. It has never been funny to the person on the receiving end of it. And, and I think that that, that those two things together have caused too many men to suffer silently because they felt like either a, they couldn't talk about it or it would jeopardize their masculinity or B if they talked about it, it would be mocked. People would make light of it. They wouldn't take it seriously. And I think that, you know, you could say for women um, who probably had it much worse because they've frankly always been judged about their appearances, like in our society, it was talked about too much. You could argue, you could say that it was talked about where people, where they, where you, where women were talking about their looks and their weight and their this and their that all the time to where it became really toxic in the other side. And so in, as opposed to finding this healthy middle ground where you could say, you know, I'm not feeling really good about myself right now and I don't know what to do. And, and honestly, not feeling good about myself is making it even harder for me to do anything about it. And people go, man, I, I get you. you know, I understand. Hey, you know what? Maybe try this or, or like, you know what? You're, I just want you to know that I don't think you look that way at all. Like none of those conversations were happening when I was a teenager. They weren't happening. They're barely happening now. And sad that that's the case. I think that every person deserves to be able to feel like they are attractive physically to somebody. I don't think that's shallow. I think that's a, a natural human need to feel like somebody else looks at you and thinks that's a good look. That's an attractive looking person. Um, I think that, that there's much more to attraction than just the way you look on the outside. I'm not advocating for this very shallow approach to, to life, but I do think that it's nice to feel like, it's nice to get a compliment on, you know, it's nice to feel like when you put your clothes on, you tuck your shirt in and you get ready to go out that somebody looks at you and goes, Oh, you look really good. Like everybody deserves to have that in their life. And what's really bad is when you eventually do have people saying that to you, but you can't believe it because you spent so much of your life convincing yourself that like stupid voice in your head has said like, like they're just making fun of you again, man. Or, they're just trying to make you not feel bad. Like, and you just can't accept it. And that's really, that's, that's sick. And I just don't want people doing that anymore. I can't do it anymore. And I'm hoping that maybe if I talk about it enough, other people will, will make <laughs> that's what change. I'm hoping too. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say to my, to my guy, I'm like, listen, it's not really, a, he makes me feel more attractive than I have with any partner in my life. Like I, he's like, you know, no, you don't need Botox. You don't need anything. I'm like, you don't understand. It's for me. <laughs> so I feel about myself. It, it, so there is, there are those two relationships when you do find that super validating, safe relationship, you know, but then you're still in this toxic one with yourself, you know, you're doing the yeah. work. But I remember something else you said that like when you used to see yourself on TV, um, on Top Chef, like you could, it, you would drive you nuts. You hated it. And I mean, what about now? How has that changed now? Well, Do you and, watch and that's honestly, no, I mean, it's, and that's not a used to, it's still the, the case. Like, you know, as I said, when I started talking about this, you know, a few weeks ago, this is very much a work in progress and it's a relatively new work in progress. Um, I still have major issues with watching myself, with, li with listening to myself, hearing my voice. Um, 
you know, and thinking to myself that, uh, that, that my voice is not deep enough, you know, that I don't sound, that I don't sound masculine enough, like all kinds of crazy. It's just, I know it's nonsense, but that doesn't stop that weird thing from happening inside your brain. Um, so no, I still absolutely do not watch myself on television. I did not watch the HLN interview, even proud of what I did. You know, I, I've never watched a single episode of myself on Top Chef other than when I was required to by contract. Wow. Um, not, not one. No, not unless one I was voluntarily. made to. Right, right, right. No, no, well, not at all. No. Um, you know, I mean, even to the point where when they send me the copies of them, uh, I've just thrown them in the garbage. Like I just get rid of them. So, and I feeling that way about yourself, like being embarrassed of yourself and having such a sad, shallow sense of self-confidence and self-worth, because it doesn't make sense to most people, Jennifer, like when they, when they read my bio or when they just casually observe what I've done in my professional life, they cannot make sense of this at all. And it's because it doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't on a, on a standard logic level, it doesn't make sense, but that's the thing about mental health is that um, mental health crisis rarely makes sense on a standard logical level. That's why we have such a hard time in this country connecting with people who need our help, who need, who need medical intervention because of something that's going on inside their head, because we can't seem to make sense of it. And that's never been the point. Um, it's it's not about whether it makes sense to you. You just have to accept it. For if somebody says it's happening, then it's happening. And yeah. um, and I think that for me, um, I've spent a great deal of my adult life recognizing that I was dealing with a physical health crisis. But it has been very recently that I realized that I was living alongside with that a mental health crisis, and I needed to address both of those. And do you think that? I mean, like, so you you seem to have done like parts of it, though, because like I know, for instance, with me and healing my own relationship with food, and I also suffered from extreme anxiety, which I have spoken out about my on, on my Instagram in hopes like you that it helps somebody, even if it's like one person that's like, hey, you know, do you know a doctor, which has been more than I anticipated the response. But just in terms of your work, you've started with the food and resetting your relationship there. And then now with the physical fitness, I see you lifting, I see you working out, like, you know, out outside, you know, you seem to be really doing all of the foundational stuff, you know, that can lead to that final ultimate thing. I mean, I always say the meaning of life is to like know oneself, you know, and to really be completely aware and to just better yourself as much as you can before you leave the world. Right. So if if at 40 you're here, it's pretty good. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, the 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 thing that I like to be aware of is that um, like the practice of meditation, you know, when you talk about meditation or yoga, it's always a practice. I practice meditation. I practice yoga. And I've all, I love that terminology because it should serve to constantly remind you that there is no such thing as like, I've learned it all now and I'm good. It's this idea that like, you have to keep working on it, mm-hmm. like to keep getting better. It will Even be the masters. rest of your life. Masters yes, exactly. who practice yoga, yes. Correct, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so they're practicing this thing their whole life. I like to think that I am practicing um, this right now, that it, that it is me constantly working on it and evolving. And what I am most battling right now personally, and I think this is probably happening for a lot of other people, and so that's why I want to be very candid about it, is that I am at an intersection point where a great deal of what I have accomplished to date 
isn't necessarily going to help me go to that next place that I need to go to and reach that next place where I um, take care of myself a little bit better. So what I mean by that is, for example, I've, I've accomplished most of what I've done by ignoring myself, by working more than any person reasonably should, and by having a sort of, a sort of physical discipline and mental discipline that has teetered on the edge of dangerous at a, at a, a great deal of my adult life. For me to get truly healthier, to live a better life, to know me better, to be happier, I'm going to have serious adjustments to my relationship with my profession as well. And that's the next big step for me is that I've addressed my own personal food consumption. I'm attempting to address this, the way that I see myself, the fact that it feels like I have a fun house mirror in my home where it's like, you know, it, it shows a different image back. It's like picture of Dorian Gray kind of thing going on here at my house. And then now I have to deal with and so where does that put me where does that put me in my in my professional field like how how do i continue to be a restaurant chef or is that or is that chapter reaching an end and now i'm going to be something i don't know i i really don't honestly know but for the first time and probably forever i'm okay with the fact that i don't know because i'm practicing getting healthier and i know that through that practice it will lead me in the right direction inevitably I think that's wonderful. And I do believe that every decision we make beforehand kind of leads to something else, you know, I mean, so everything that you have done could have been purposefully leading to this sure. point, you know, I mean, you, yeah. you're an exceptional person and a highly intelligent chef. And I think that, you know, if there's anyone who's going to figure out the next step, it's going to be you. But I mean, okay. so like, you're going to take time away and just kind of like be, is that your yeah, plan? So you know, so part of the reason why we began doing this sort of philanthropic work is because I felt very led to do it. It was something where I felt like um, I needed to do it because it was part of that healthy relationship with food was not just making extremely expensive, indulgent food that only served a single class of people. Um, you know, part of the reason we started the philanthropic work was because I felt more compelled to make sure that a kid was getting fed at night so that they could go to school and, and maybe be a little bit more successful in their schoolwork or constantly worrying about being hungry. Um, that felt much more important to me at this point in my life than whether or not I go to work at gun show tomorrow and make a dish that is, you know, Oh my God, I can't believe we somehow elevated that thing. One more step. Like I, I, I don't feel particularly passionate about that anymore. Now, the great thing is that, being a mentor means that there's a whole lot of people underneath me who it's their turn and they are still extremely passionate and focused about that. And that's why we have them in the position that they're in. So for me, this, um, you know, the full plate project, our, uh, our, you know, philanthropic mission has been very helpful for me to be able to um, see that relationship with food. Can you the, talk about what that is for people that don't yeah, know? Absolutely. So we had this really unique opportunity during COVID um, to help serve the Atlanta public school system. I was approached by the then superintendent, Dr. Karstoffen, and, and she said, look, we have a problem. We, the school system, only know how to feed the kids when they're at school. We don't really know how to, we don't know what to do when they're not here. Could you help us? Because we have some families and some kids who are really in trouble. Like if they don't get food from us, they don't get food. And at that time, this was very early on in the COVID thing, we had restaurants that frankly, like 
we had no reason to keep them open. They were there was nobody going to them. And so I said, absolutely. Well, why don't we take cold beer, which was our biggest restaurant, our biggest kitchen, um, and say, look, I'll dedicate its manpower to making food for these families. And so we had an opportunity to start producing dinners that were delivered to um, to the kids uh, going to these schools and also to their parents and their grandparents and whomever else lived in the household. And it definitely was a light switch moment for me because it opened my eyes to a number of issues that I saw existing out there that I felt like we could somehow address um, very optimistically, but we could address these things. And one was, was the obvious, the hunger side of this was that we absolutely had the bandwidth to produce food and get it in the hands of these kids and their families. So not just the kids themselves, but mom and dad deserve to eat as well. Um, the second was an economic component to it. I watched the supply chain for my restaurants nearly collapse because we buy pretty much exclusively from these very small producers, small farmers, small ranchers, small artisans, when they rely on the restaurant world. And when that dried up, man, they they all nearly went bankrupt as well. And so we said, well, that's crazy. Like we have to make sure they don't do that. So let's make sure we're giving them, like we're spending our money with them now more than ever. We really, really need to watch that. And so- we said, okay, well, let's do that. Then the third was there's a lot of food that's still going to waste in this country. Like it's just it's shocking to me how quickly like we just throw things away. Um, you know, even in our own restaurants, like what if we just said like that doesn't happen anymore? There is no more like waste. Like anything and everything has to get utilized, even if we're subdividing it to go out to different sort of initiatives. And then the fourth was if this is ever going to get any better, we have got to do something about changing the community's knowledge and, and relationship with food. And I don't mean that, you know, a lot, of, it's not like most of these people are going hungry because they just don't like stuff, but nevertheless, the things that I can get in their hands, the easiest are raw products from the Atlanta community food bank, um, vegetables, utilizing wholesome wave snap benefits, things like that. But they require a certain knowledge of how mm -hmm. to deal with food to be able to take advantage of those. And so we said, well, we're going to start our own project. And we're going to address those four pillars and we're going to give them all equal precedent. And we're going to see if we can't deal with them all at the same time. And so that's exactly what we did. I went out and raised money from various and assorted individuals. Mostly I put a bunch of my own personal money into it. My wife and I made the decision that we, uh, that we just don't really need as much money as we have tried to make most of our adult life. We just said, you know what, this is silly. So we sold off a bunch of our possessions, like more indulgent things. Like I've always loved cars. And so we sold all of, our, all of the exotic cars off and we <laughs> took the money and we put it into this charity and started it and said, all right, well, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to go buy food from these small producers. We're going to combine that with rescued food. We're going to turn this food into meals that we're going to give to these families that the school system is going to help identify for us. They're going to say, these are the people who need the help above what we can provide we're going to do it anonymously. So we're going to give it to a third party organization to donate to the school so that no family ever has to feel beholden to me. I don't need them to know that I made their food. I want them to feel like their school gave it to them, not, not me. Uh, and then when the time comes, once they're in high school and then beyond, we're going to find a way to help the education component by hopefully offering them jobs, summer, summer internships, or even paid full-time jobs for adults to help make this food so that I can teach them a trade. And then we're going to find a way and find somebody to fund a program at the high school level that teaches the kids about food through an entrepreneurial lens. We're going to, we're going to grow food. My restaurant group will make a commitment to buying hundred percent of it 
but the students have to make a commitment to listening to the market, hearing what we want, and then producing it, and then actually selling it, and then they'll get to keep the money. And so amazing. we created we created the Full Plate Project and, and uh, partnered with an organization here in Atlanta called Second Helpings that is a food rescue organization. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing. And so we've been making, uh, we've made a little over 500,000 meals since March of last year. So wow. And that has all gone to public school families? Yeah, it's uh, specifically, we serve the Maynard Jackson Education Portal. So Maynard Jackson High School, King Middle School, and then there's eight elementary schools that feed up into that portal. And so we work with their counselors and social workers to identify the families. Um, I don't know who they are. Uh, it's anonymous to me. I'm just given a, a number of people in a household and we produce it, package it, label it. Um, everything is made in-house. So if you're getting like a sandwich, for example, and it's on bread, we've made the bread. Um, and so we're giving you very nutritious food, but being mindful of the fact that it's going to kids mostly. Um, and then we deliver it to the schools and the schools um, give it to the families at the end of the day um, and they let them take it home. And so that's what they do. So each night they get their dinner to take home with them. So it's amazing. So this is what you're doing right now is the yeah, it's like. Yeah, I'm basically doing that. I'm in charge of the side where uh, turns out the hardest part about this is making sure you don't run out of money. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty big lift, to be honest with you, financially. Um, and so we are advocating for donations in any capacity that we can get them. We are getting ready to launch it at the restaurant level where any diner can also buy a meal for their buy a meal for your neighbor. Basically, it's cheaper than another cocktail. So I don't see why people wouldn't do it. But then we've also been very fortunate that we've had some benefactors, some local donors who have donated really substantial amounts of money to this project as well. Um, and that's my goal. My goal is to continue to raise money for it and then increase our bandwidth. I would like to take on another education portal um, before the end of 2021. So whether that be, you know, uh, somewhere in the DeKalb County, whether that be Castleberry Hill, uh, we'll, we will use the public school system to help us evaluate the next highest need. It was It was determined that the Maynard Jackson portal was the highest need for us immediately. And so we'll go on to the next one behind that. And when we do so, hopefully we'll bring on another restaurant group to help us provide that food um, as well. So if people want to donate or if people want yeah. to volunteer, anything that you want me, I don't want to say plug because I know you're trying to like get out of that, like that mindset, but um, if there's anything that you want our listeners to know about as a call to action, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Know. Yeah. Well, I would say like, absolutely. Please check out secondhelpings.org, um, secondhelpingsatlanta.org. And that will uh, be where you can make a donation to the Full Play Project. Um, I would tell people that right now it is incredibly important. I know you've been hearing this for over a year now, but you have, we need your help. The local restaurants world still needs your help guys. Like, um, you know, we're, we're afloat. We personally, my group is afloat, but, um, I think we are, I think we lost $12 million last year or something like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's still really hard out there guys. And I don't want you to be unsafe, but I do want people to know that, um, we're doing everything we can to keep you safe on our end tonight. And I would encourage you when you're ready, when you feel comfortable to please come back out and dine with us because, um, it's not just about the satisfaction of dining. Um, I, I think people need to know that their money that they spend on the local level really does a lot at the local level. You know, this is providing, I'm speaking for myself, but my restaurant group has always been one that we, we pay people a living wage. Like you're doing a lot to help, help your neighbors live a life that they deserve to live too. 
they shouldn't have to be miserable either. And so we appreciate your support and in any capacity that you can provide it, that's great. And if you're not quite ready to go out to eat yet, another thing that, that folks can do if they want to help to help my side specifically, I am hosting virtual cooking classes. Um, I have six between now and July, and then we'll add another six from July till the end of the year. A hundred percent of the proceeds of those classes go to my to my team. They help to pay the wages for the Red Beard Restaurant Group um, and help keep people's insurance. You know, we made it. We we kept everyone insured through COVID, um, wow. even when they weren't working. So. Um, Anything that folks can do, I appreciate it. You know, obviously, if they can't because it's tough times for them, um, I get it. You need to prioritize your your family and your friends first. And obviously, I have made a commitment to my team that that even if my future eventually leads me down a different path, right now it's my responsibility as their leader to help us navigate through this crisis and help as many people as possible come out the other side healthy and happy. That's awesome, Kevin. Yeah, and I see right here I had printed out the list of so there's seafood at home and southern cooking. Yeah. Um, yeah. and all of the money will be going to support your staff at the restaurants. Yeah, yeah. And you have three. So cold beer okay. and cold beer are all three open. Mm -hmm. Yep. Our other two, mm -hmm. um, Game Changer and Old Reliable, are still not back open um and you know won't be open for the foreseeable future. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's, I would say it sounds kind of pessimistic, but in truth, I think we're incredibly optimistic right now. I'm, I'm a big advocate for the fact that, um, we societally needed something to shake us up a little bit. And, um, I, I feel, I hate it. I've lost a lot of friends in COVID. I've lost several friends who have passed away due to it. And it's, and it's really tragic, but I also value the fact that sometimes we as people need crisis to make substantive change in our life. And I think that I see some, some light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that, um, you know, speaking just for my industry, I think that a lot of those changes were beyond necessary and the time had, had long since come for them. And so I'm hoping and help and, and advocating for a healthier version um, of the culinary arts scene and of the restaurant world moving forward. And this was like a control alt delete for the scene. It's been, it's been interesting to say the least. So uh, yeah, I don't know how many more like, you know, though I joked, I was like, man, I should just do shirtless photos on Instagram from now on. They get way more traction, like way more. I think they're so, like in the algorithm or something. I'm not sure how yeah, that works, I, I, Honest know? to God, I think that's it. I was like, I think somehow Instagram has messed up and they're like, no clothes, boost that one. And you're like, well, you might not really want to do that, but yeah. Tats, so. tats and skin, tats and skin. Yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. So. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you're it. You're welcome. Well, that wraps up our debut episode of The Food That Binds. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thank you to Kevin Gillespie for stopping by. Make sure you keep up with everything he's doing at his website, redbeardrestaurants.com. And if you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman on Instagram and Twitter. We're back for another episode next Wednesday, and we've got Atlanta Food Royalty paying us a visit. Acclaimed restaurant critic Christiane Lauterbach joins me to talk about growing up in Paris, her relationship with food over the years, and everything Atlanta restaurants. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.